Hi everyone, Mike Ludwig with Truth Out Here. Welcome to Climate Frontlines. A lot has happened since our last episode. Donald J. Trump, who wanted to be the fossil fuel industry's best friend forever, is out of the White House, and President Joe Biden is already charting a different course. Shortly after his inauguration last week, Biden revoked a key permit for the Keystone XL pipeline, reversed Trump's push to allow oil and gas drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, and put a pause on new lease sales to oil and gas companies operating on public lands. By the way, Biden did not ban fracking and probably won't anytime soon, and we'll get into that later. In fact, Biden's initial actions alone are not going to make a big dent in fossil fuel production, but the president did signal that he is serious about climate and clean energy. The pause on new oil and gas leases gives Biden time to address deregulation under Trump and advocate for Rep. Deb Holland, his nominee for Secretary of the Interior. If confirmed, the Democratic Congresswoman from New Mexico would make history as the first Native American cabinet secretary. The Interior Department manages vast ecosystems across land and water and issues permits for oil and gas projects like Keystone XL. Since Keystone XL hit the scene over a decade ago, as Canada pushed to export more carbon-heavy oil from the Alberta tar sands, the pipeline has faced stiff opposition from climate activists, ranchers, and, importantly, tribal governments. Since then, indigenous activists emerged as leaders of a movement to stop new oil and gas infrastructure that would slow the transition to clean energy. They've also put increasing pressure on politicians like Joe Biden. So what happens next? I asked Jade Begay, the climate justice director at the NDN Collective, an indigenous-led organization building indigenous power by working with frontline activists. The role of indigenous communities is, and peoples and tribes is pretty central in the fight to stop the KXL pipeline, um, not just in the US, but also in, um, in Canada. Um, you know, above what we call the medicine line, uh, which is, you know, also known as the U.S.-Canada border. Um, so uh, on both sides of the border, um, you have uh, you have tribes fighting um, the infrastructure projects. So that is the Keystone XL pipeline. Um, and you also have people fighting the extraction happening in the Alberta tar sands, which is um, Often people will say, "Stop it at the source," and that's what, and that's what we're talking about is ending extraction um, in the tar sands. That is the largest um, and most like catastrophic uh, extraction project in the world, um, and the impacts of that project alone are um, are just like ginormous on on both indigenous lands, water, um, so many violations to indigenous rights, but also hugely um, devastating for the climate. So actually, um, many years ago, I want to say, like 14 to 15 years ago, there was a gathering of various indigenous uh, environmental justice leaders um, and various uh, other non-native um, EJ leaders across, um, yeah, North America, 
And it was actually decided then that, you know, the strategy is to is to stop these infrastructure projects so that we can stop extraction at the source. That was kind of the idea that if, you know, we cut off, if you think of the Alberta tar sands as like, you know, a monster with like many heads, um, the idea was if you start cutting off the heads of this monster, then the, the, you know, the body or the heart of the monster, so to speak, will be, um, will be destroyed. Um, and so that's where, really where the KXL, um, the no KXL pipeline uh, movement or resistance began. So this, this fight has been, like I said, 14, 13 years in, in, um, in the movement, in the, in the works. And, uh, you know, the first win with the, uh, with the Obama, excuse me, with the Obama administration, um, you know, many people will contribute that to, uh, the indigenous leadership that happened, um, whether that was by lawsuits or just, you know, very, uh, targeted strategic organizing. Um, there is the famous, you know, cowboy and or ranchers and um and native communities coming together that kind of you know brought these unlikely characters together to stop um the kxl pipeline that was you know during the first um attempt to kill this pipeline um so there's been so many different strategies of of like i said different communities coming together working together um, you know, really in the name of water, really in the name of having safe uh, land, safe environment. Um, and, and yeah, let's see, uh, after, after um, the pipeline was uh, brought back to life by the Trump administration, um, you know, there was the famous, the famous quote by the uh, um, I believe it was the Cheyenne River Sioux tribe, um, the statement from that tribal uh, leader or the council leader was, you know, we'll be waiting. And that was such a, I think that was like the extent of the press release. And, um, you know, that really just set the tone for, you know, we're, we're prepared, we're ready to, uh, you know, of course, it was very disappointing, but we always have to be ready for, you know, any any type of uh, decision changing or shifting. So, um, yeah, since then, there's been lawsuits, there's been organizing, um, the promise to protect coalition, which the Indian Collective is a part of, um, that that emerged from, you know, the revamping of the pipeline. And that's a coalition um, of indigenous tribes, indigenous grassroots groups, organizations, also groups like 350.org, um, the Indigenous Environmental Network. So, um, and then, you know, there's many other ACLU, South Dakota. Um, so yeah, there's just been like a, a huge groundswell, you know, for, like I said, over a decade of really putting the pressure on to stop this pipeline. And now that, um, you know, there was a change in, in government um, and in favor of, of, um, 
of what we what we're demanding. Um, you know, we just in the days leading up to inauguration, uh, there was just a lot of pressure, both um, you know, happening uh, on like social media, but also internally, people working really hard to make sure that that was something that the Biden administration followed through on. Um, and I'll also say that um, over the course of the last year, um, I remember it was, I think, around May, it was around springtime last year, um, 2020, when Biden uh, made a promise. He officially came out on record saying he would promise to stop the KXL pipeline. And I really think that was like a moment for Indian country to, to be like, okay, and now we're mobilizing the native vote even more so. Um, I mean, we always knew we had to get out the vote to, um, you know, to yeah, elect anyone but Trump. But um, yeah, I think this promise and, and other promises too around climate, around protecting the Arctic, um, those were really some of the like points around environment and, um, and strengthening nation to nation relationships that I think helped build the momentum in Indian country to, um, to, elect, uh, to elect Biden. Um, so, yeah. Let's zero in on that just a little bit. I mean, just to put this in perspective, right? Um, like the Alberta tar sands, and correct me if I'm wrong, are are basically that's like open strip mining extraction, right? And and the oil that is coming out of the ground from these pits, basically that they would extract it from or are extracting it from, is very carbon intensive. It is to be like used and burned. And that's what would be in the Keystone XL pipeline. But also, that's not the only pipeline where we see indigenous leadership um, at, at the forefront of resistance. There's Line 3 in Minnesota and Line 5 in Michigan. And the list goes on. And so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that moment and, and what led up to it, where, where Biden made the commitment to stop this particular pipeline, the Keystone XL pipeline, that has become really a symbol of... Of, of pipeline resistance over the past, right, you said 14 years. Right. Yeah, I think um, a part of it is that, you know, this was a decision made during the Obama administration. And I think this, that was a, that was kind of a, um, you know, there was so- You mean there, to allow the, to permit the pipeline? Oh, no, to um, stop the Keystone XL pipeline. Right, because it, it was basically, if I remember correctly, towards the end of the Obama administration, they were ready to kill the permits, and then Trump brought them back, correct? Right. So um, I can't remember. It wasn't. So there was there are a couple things that happened during the Obama administration. So there was um, there was the uh, the killing of the KXL pipeline. Also, there was an executive order um, towards the end of that administration to um, stop the Dakota Access Pipeline, uh, both of which, you know, very symbolic, very, um, very important for Indian country. Of course, you know, we wanted these decisions made uh, much sooner than it took to actually make them, but um, ultimately those decisions were made. 
Um, and, and it was huge. I was, I was in Standing Rock the day that that news was broke, um, that the, uh, Obama administration would, uh, stop the Dakota access pipeline. And, um, just the energy was, you know, it was, yeah, I'll never forget it. Um, it was joyous and also just this huge sense of relief, um, but also very emboldening for our people to know that, you know, like this type of resistance works. And um, so I think part of, you know, the promise that the Biden administration made around um, KXL last year, I think it, it comes from that legacy. Um, the Biden-Harris uh, tribal um, agenda or the plan to work with tribes um, you know, that that didn't come out till November or October 2020, um, just around there. But I think that, you know, this action is a part of uh, strengthening, like I said, strengthening nation to nation relationships. I think it's it's something, you know, people, um, you know, many advisors um, who who, you know, are are helping the Biden-Harris administration, you know, know what our priority is for different communities. I think this was at the top of the list. Um, at least it was the top at the top of the list for um, NDN Collective um, and many other Indigenous groups that we work with. So this decision you see as kind of a, as part of the legacy of the uprising at Standing Rock Absolutely. against the Dakota Access Pipeline. Okay. Absolutely. Um, so we see then that uh, indigenous activists have been able to push Biden on climate and on these pipelines, on infrastructure, because I think it's important to point out that we've seen so much direct action against pipelines going back to the beginning of Keystone XL to now. It's I've, In my perspective, it's only been increasing in people taking direct action, filing lawsuits, taking all sorts of action to stop actual fossil fuel infrastructure before it can be put in place to continue the production of fossil fuels well into the future. We know that Biden has a goal of, you know, decades from now, you know, being a fossil free country, uh, that that's a, a long transition and under his timeline. But we've seen here that, you know, he can be pushed on climate. He's taking climate seriously. He's also being attacked for this right now. He's being attacked for for banning fracking. I think it's important to point out that Biden is not banning fracking. Uh, that is a, a lie that is being um, spread across right-wing media right now. It's not true. He's limiting new fracking on public lands. And there's plenty of private land where plenty of oil and gas drilling will continue. But so there's still, you know, there's still a long way to go as far as actually reducing our reliance on fossil fuels. And I wonder how you see the role of indigenous activists when it comes to not just pushing Biden and leaders like Biden, on climate, but also like the United Nations and other entities that are are uh, supposed to be taking the lead on this issue. When in reality, we see a lot of you know serious grassroots activism and leadership coming from below. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really excited for what's to come um, within Indigenous movements around protecting land, water, um, and also strengthening various actions around uh, climate action. Um, I think, you know, you brought up public lands. Uh, that is definitely something that is, you know, at the top of 
our agendas, our, um, you know, how, how we want to mobilize, how we want to work, uh, you know, and, and we're not, you know, this time around, I think we've been, we've been fooled enough by, uh, or I wouldn't say fooled, but, uh, actually just, you know, there's been loopholes. And so for example, with, um, with the various pipelines, uh, you know, we were able to end it in one administration and then another one comes in. So it's like, how can we prevent that from happening in the future? Um, same thing with like the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. How do we, how do we mobilize now? How do we create the right, um, strategies so that permanent protection is in place? Um, not just for the Arctic, Wildlife Refuge, but also the Bears Ears National Monument, um, and I think what what is exciting for our movements is that um, we, you know, Deb Halland, uh, who is is hopefully soon to be our um, Secretary of the Interior, um, is. A native person who comes from New Mexico, where where I live, where fracking is huge. Um, it's a huge threat to our public lands. It's a huge threat to um, our our water, our our air. Um, and so, you know, she is very aware of these of these issues. She grew up, you know, in in a tribal community with limited access to water, to power. She knows what it's like. And I hope that that, um, we can, yeah, we can only hope that that experience is going to play a big role in how she'll take action around these various, um, these, these various demands that, you know, our, our indigenous rights movements have. Um, I think another, another thing that is growing across Indian country, not just here in the U.S., but like I said, up in, up in Canada, up in so-called Canada, is is an idea of um, land back and also an idea around rights of nature, this rights of nature framework, which recognizes that ecosystems and, and the natural world are entities that they have rights, um, almost like people have rights. Um, and we already see this type of uh, framework being adopted in various countries um, led by indigenous peoples, um, namely in New Zealand, where ver uh, various um, uh, nature, uh, um, various uh, like rivers and, and things like that have have personhood, have rights. That's what they call it in, in and Ecuador as well, correct? Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I'm not sure if the Ecuadorian government has has acknowledged that, but um, I know that there's uh, organizing there's also people-led movements that are pushing that type of framework and i think um yeah that is like a very indigenous uh led value um that i think if we can start adopting into into some of our um state and and federal laws you know that would that would be a game changer for sure but i think those are some of the those are some of the um ideas, frameworks that I think we can, we'll be seeing more of, especially when it comes to protecting public lands um, and, and asking for uh, better protections. Um, one more thing I'll just mention that I know is on, um, you know, the forefront of lots of Indigenous communities and Indigenous organizations' demands is 
is strengthened free prior informed consent. Um, and the consent piece is the really important part because what you see a lot of the times with these infrastructure projects with um, with drilling with mining is um, you know there will be uh, reports that say we consulted and consultation can be really you mean consulting with oh. the tribal governments right right so okay. yeah so they will write you know oh tribes are in favor um, and I think that's just that's just not enough. Um, you know, depending on where you're at in Indian country, it's very possible that um, the tribal government might be in favor of extraction because you know they're held in a rock and a hard place in between a rock and economically, a hard place. right? Economically, yes, they have their hands. Yeah. And, and the way we've talked about that is being, is by um, being, um, we refer to that as being held um, as economic hostages. So a lot of the time, like I said, a lot of the times you'll see tribes vote in favor of some of these projects, but that's not necessarily the perspective from the people who are going to be ultimately impacted first and worst by whatever type of project it is. So and they're and they're voting for it because they they are interested in jobs or some kind of revenue from the project and 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 they see that as 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 economically in their best interest even if it's not desirable. Right. And there's the there's the issue of jobs as well. So, you know, a lot of a lot of rural tribes, you know, uh, the the job market um can be a challenge and so you know this is where you know you'll start to see um various indigenous communities um and and tribes potentially come out with their own versions of the green new deal you know um the the green new deal is not a sweeping you know one size fits all um it's going to look different for every community so how can we um, I think, and this is the work that I'm really excited um, about as as um, the climate justice director at NDN Collective, is to really learn and understand, you know, what what um, renewable energy solutions, what just transition solutions away from the fossil fuel industry can support our communities, um, you know with with jobs in renewable energy how can we how can we build that workforce train that workforce um and and that's i think that's something we'll be seeing over the course of the next year years you know decades <laughs> however however long it takes i think we're dedicated to that work there was a term you brought up earlier that i want to revisit um one was medicine line to the to refer to the border between the U.S. and Canada, and then there was another one that you just brought up—not rights of nature, but there was another term. Land back. Um, land back. Can you can you explain a little bit what the concept of land back is, particularly in the context of of oil and gas infrastructure fights, but just in general with with governments and also treaties? So, um, land back. Uh, this is a growing evolving uh, indigenous led framework movement um, 
that I, I, I believe the origins of this movement took place actually in Canada, um, so-called Canada, um, by First Nations fighting, again, uh, various um, fossil fuel projects, uh, namely the Trans Mountain uh, pipeline. That's that's when we really started to see this, this term being popularized. Um, and for NDN Collective, uh, we have a land back campaign, so um, people can check that out at landback.org and learn more about like our our perspective on this um, on this movement, on this campaign, on this um, yeah this framework. But uh, really, you know, at the core of it is putting um, giving back land, putting back land into indigenous hands. Um, so this this means public lands, this means uh, private lands, and so we're we're really building you know the the mechanisms and the processes and the narratives around how this can happen, um, and of course working with um, and resourcing. Like I said earlier, that's part of our mission is to resource the indigenous led movements across North America um, to be able to carry out, you know, whether they have a land back agenda or, you know, whether they're doing social entrepreneurship. Um, but, you know, we want to, we want to support the fights that are happening across the nation to, to get land back, to be able to manage lands, um, to be able to, um, yeah, exercise their self-determination um, on, on their traditional lands. Um, so, uh, it, it, I think land back means a lot of things to different people, um, but I, I can be fairly certain that there's, um, you know, the core of it is, is just as it, as it says, land back. Sure. And to connect that with climate, one of the um, ideas I've seen emerging, not just from the Bayou Bridge Pipeline, which had, uh, which faced resistance from an indigenous led um, group of protesters and activists, uh, Keystone XL and Dakota Access Pipeline, Line 5, Line 3, all of these fights against infrastructure are about water and they're about land, but they're also about indigenous stewardship of the earth, which um, I'm learning more about how that is going to be so crucial for preventing climate destruction. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean... Yeah, we could get really deep into that. Uh, let's see. Let's pick a let's pick a place. Um, how about California with like all the examples of wildfires? I mean, that was a huge example of you know removing indigenous peoples from their territories, um, and that's another part of land back is is dismantling white supremacy, dismantling these structures that forcefully removed um, indigenous peoples from our lands um, and, and, you know, kept us in, in oppression. And, and then now, you know, the, the results are climate change, um, climate crisis, are you know, pollution. Um, so in addition to, you know, returning lands, you know, fighting for um, an era of policy around free and prior informed consent, um, we need to dismantle the structures that made it possible for us to be removed from our lands and us 
um, and that made it possible for us to not have a say around what happens on, on our lands and territories. Um, so yeah, back to the example of, of California. Um, yeah, there's a legacy of colonization there, people being removed from their territories, but, you know, uh, various tribes, especially, um, I mean, I guess all across California, but, you know, the, the tribes that I've been able to talk with and meet with and learn from, are our Ohlone, our Pomo, people up in kind of like the Northern California region. And they had ways to manage manage their forests, to, um, to have safe burns. They had, they had ancestral knowledge. Um, another, another term that's used in, in our um, environmental or climate justice work is, is uh, traditional ecological knowledge. Um, so that, is just basically saying that indigenous peoples have the tools, the innovation, um, the wisdom, the knowledge to manage lands. And, you know, it comes from centuries of, of being with these, these ecosystems and learning how they work. So, um, yeah, a part of the land back movement is definitely, um, getting, getting, um, not lands, not just, you know, back into, um, indigenous hands, but you know, what are, and what are the ways we're going to manage these lands so that we can mitigate climate change so that we can have um, regeneration um, around these ecosystems because um, a lot of these ecosystems are, are dying as, as a, as a impact of, of climate change. Well, thank you so much for helping us connect the dots today on Climate Front Lines, Jade. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Climate Front Lines. This show wouldn't exist if it weren't for my colleagues at Truthout, and Truthout's independent news and commentary wouldn't exist without support from listeners and readers like you. We have no paywalls, no corporate sponsors, and no ads, ever. So, if you can and would like to support our work, please consider dropping by truthout.org to make a donation today. You can also help us get the word out by liking, sharing, and subscribing to this podcast.